enjoy uh, I enjoy talking to you guys because um, the the uh, tradition is to get a guest speaker for uh, our men's breakfast, but I keep telling Chad I want to be the guest speaker. Uh, so um, so I just enjoy this opportunity to talk to you guys. Why don't we pray for a moment and we'll go to the Lord. Lord, we uh, come to you in prayer, and then we come to you in your word. Uh, what an amazing combination that we get to uh, speak to you and to ask for your blessing on the, the very words that you have given to us. And that's a very confident prayer we can pray because you want us to understand your word. You want us to know you. You want us to know how to follow you better. I pray for these men here. I pray for those who will listen remotely uh, at a later time that uh, you would pierce our hearts with one or two uh, areas where we can be godlier men. Uh, Lord, we're given such a short time on this earth, just a few decades, and we're done. And so I pray that we would make the most of the time, for the days are evil, and that we would be men who are pleasing to you, and that we could go home someday, having been satisfied that we lived life as men of God. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and, and um, I enjoy talking to you guys because I don't have to smooth the path in order to get to your heart so you can just start hammering away immediately and that's that's fun there's a, a an effect i've called the I, i've heard called the anesthetic effect i've heard others call it the um, ecclesiological numbing and we might describe that as the the phenomenon by which a christian man slowly slips into a, a mediocre apathetic relationship with his local church now, he might be a guy who's involved. He might be doing a lot. He might be on some teams or some committees or uh, even in leadership. Everyone knows who he is, but he, he's kind of on the fringes. And you have to kind of think about, well, wait a minute. You know, what, is this guy faithful or is he not? He attends worship enough to seem faithful, um, he, but he, he misses enough to skirt real accountability. He's sort of there, but he's not there. If you, if you ask around, uh, have you seen so-and-so? Oh, yeah, I see him all the time. But if you ask, who do you see him sharing his heart with? Who, who is he close to? Who is he intimately involved with? You begin to think, well, not really anybody. There's a, a fringe element. He's not getting deep with other men in any context. Um, this is a man who likes, he may even profess to love the Word of God. He loves the preaching of the Word. But if you ask those uh, around him if there is what we might call a fire or a desire to aspire higher, then no, it's not necessarily there. There's just kind of a, a, a pseudo-faithfulness. No one around him would characterize him as eager for the Lord, as really aspiring to, to seek after the Lord. I think part of the numbness effect is the belief that my circumstances are keeping me from fellowshipping like I should. And yes, I understand that men have an, an unusual problem. Men get jobs, and then your bosses say you have to work on Sundays. And I understand that, and we get that. Um, every man I have ever prayed with about getting a new job situation so that they can worship with the body of Christ, I've never seen that prayer go unanswered, not one time. But, you know, I've heard these excuses. Well, you know, I have this and I have that. So, okay, yeah, you have to work some Sundays. But um, every, every Saturday, every other Wednesday when we have Ironman, every BTI Friday, and I'm getting real personal here, but here, here's the numbness that can happen. The numbness is I can stay on the fringe 
and I'll still be okay spiritually and nobody will notice. That's the numbness. That's the, the, the beginning of the lack of hunger. Now, I'm not even so concerned about the guy who is keeping up appearances for others, but the worst part of the numbness is saying, I can stay on the fringe and I won't notice. It won't become a big deal to me anymore. I won't have that hunger for the body of Christ that I can maintain a vibrant, close, obedient walk with Christ, but with a ho-hum attitude about being intimate with other men in the body of Christ. As you read through the, um, the epistles, Paul's in particular, he continually talks about the, the intimacy and the closeness of the relationships that he has with men. And, and we see that all through his letters and, and this, this emotion, this connectedness that he has and that he's gone after. This has been a problem in the, in the church since Paul's day. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he wants to wake up the men in his church in Corinth. And he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. And he's trying to wake them up. Now, ladies don't necessarily need this sort of sermon. Because ladies have this natural social drive to get together. All you have to do is say, ladies, why don't you... And you don't even have to finish the sentence. They're already putting things on the calendar and they're planning all kinds of things. They have a deep yearning to gather together. So getting ladies to, to come together to minister alongside one another, it's not generally a problem. When we started our mentoring ministry recently and ladies are flocking to that because there's a natural yearning. The guys are different. We have a natural tendency to do the opposite, to withdraw, to isolate, to become an island to ourselves to pull back, to give reasons and excuses why we're not going to get intimately involved with other men. But we need each other. We absolutely need each other. Now, I am aware that I'm dealing with an issue that those who need to hear it are not here. And I understand that. Um, so I'm going to address that when we're, when we're done. Um, but you are here. And I trust that the Lord has brought you here for a purpose, every one of you. And here's the purpose. I want to talk about why men need each other in the local church. And we're going to use Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. A very familiar passage to you. But I want to tell you right now, I'm, I'm preaching for action. There's no other way to preach. I don't want to just give you knowledge. Uh, I don't know how much new information you're going to get this morning. But what I'm preaching for is for you who are here to begin to actively draw into the fellowship those in your heart and mind that the Lord may lay on your heart I think this guy might be sort of in the numbness fringe category, and I want to draw him in. I want to bring him in. So start praying even now, who would the Lord lay on your heart um, to, to think about that in that context? Uh, you recall the book of Hebrews is written to Christians who are suffering. They are Jewish believers. They're possibly uh, those who haven't come fully to faith yet, some of them. Uh, they're not believers. Uh, the, the others are believers, and there's kind of a mixture that uh, the, the author writes to. I believe that these are Roman Jewish uh, people that are being written to. There are Christians who have returned to Rome. They profess faith in Christ. They've returned to Rome after uh, the death of Emperor Claudius. Claudius had decreed that all Jews and Christians are banned from Rome. After he died, they could come back. Well, the problem is now that um, once the Jews came back, there is a decidedly anti-Christian environment. So if you're a Jew who claims to be a Christian and you're coming back to Rome, you have some choices to make because you are going to suffer for your faith if you claim Christ. The writer is basically saying, make your stand. Decide if you are in Christ or not. And he says several times, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
And he, he is affirming, yes, you will suffer for your faith, but make a stand. Make, make the decision. And so that's the context of Hebrews. I want to just be very simple this morning and, and somewhat brief. I'm not going to preach for a long time. But I want to just give you from this passage, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, six reasons that men need each other. And I just want to use some key word definitions. We're going to learn a few Greek words this morning just for fun. The six reasons men need each other, and we'll use some key words. Here are the six reasons. The right thinking, the right coaching, the right service, the right leadership, the right example, and the right urgency. And I'll repeat those as we go. But the right thinking, the right coaching, the right service, the right leadership, the right example, and the right urgency. So let me just read these verses to us from the English Standard Version. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, very familiar. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let's start off with the first reason, right thinking. Right thinking, this is a reason men need each other. The first word, the key word we're going to look at is consider. Consider, we'll learn our first Greek word, kata noeo. Say that with me, kata noeo. All right, there you go. You now know Greek. It means to think about something very carefully. It means to consider it. It means to give something more than passing a passing thought. It means to comprehend something, to wrap your mind around something, to grasp it, to perceive it. It goes beyond just a passing interest. It's, it's way beyond thinking, okay, he's got a good point, what's for lunch? It goes beyond that. What is it that we're considering? What, what the text says to consider is how to stir one another up to love and good works. And this is a, there's a massive implication to this, that being stirred up to love and good works is not something you do as a solo effort. It's something that we do together. We need one another for this. It's not an independent activity um, at all. And it takes work. It takes effort for us to get together. I got an email recently from a pastor who wanted my ideas. He wanted to inspire his men to greater level of spiritual commitment. And I thought, well, that was great. I read the first line of this email, and he wanted, and he said, but here's what I need. I need ideas on materials that are completely prepackaged, that I don't have to do any work or study. I can just show up and read it to them. And so I sent him a, a, a short email uh, back <laughs> that I just told him, here's a couple books you can use, but this is lame. You're asking your men to aspire to a higher level of spiritual commitment, but you want me to prepackage an easy deal for you. That's the wrong message. You're, giving, you're not making them think, and you're not thinking. And I figured I don't know him, and he's not gonna, you know, he can't do anything to me. So I just asked him to consider um, maybe you ought to actually uh, study and teach from the Scripture. And I, I looked at his website, and he has a plethora of staff under him. And this guy wants to just have, he has me giving him an idea on a prepackaged idea. And I, I sort of, I guess, gave him a little bit of a verbal tongue lashing via email as gently as I could. But his thinking was wrong. He wasn't thinking hard about what he was doing. He wasn't actively loving. He wasn't stirring up his guys. He wasn't setting an example for them. 
what we want to do is what the leadership did in First Thessalonians 5. That is the labor and work for the faith in the church. Right thinking includes, includes establishing a culture. Includes establishing a culture of learning and growing in God's word. Something that thrills me so much here at our church is when I hear one of you guys talk about how you listened to a message two or three times or you led your family to listen to a message again and you're, you're getting into it. This is thrilling. And it has to be the men who establish the culture in the church. You know what's sad to me? I, I remember preaching in a church once where I asked everyone to open their Bibles and I saw all the ladies in the church opening their Bibles and getting out pens and notebooks and ready to go and all the guys just sitting there kind of half asleep. I thought, this is upside down. And they needed to be setting the example, but the women were outstripping the men in their uh, spiritual perception, in their thinking. It's the men who established the culture of the church that we're continually having our minds transformed. And I would love to hear more. I, I hear this. I'd love to hear more guys talking in our church. Where are you reading lately? What's the Lord doing in your life? How are you following the Lord? How are you serving Him in your marriage? How are you serving Him with your kids? How can I pray for you? Um, haven't seen you in church in a couple of weeks. What's going on? You know, guys can be that direct with each other, and, and we need that right thinking. What's the right thinking for? It's what we're to consider, to, to think carefully about, to perceive, to give more than a passing thought to. What is it for? It is, for the next reason, right coaching. Right coaching. reason men need each other is for right coaching. Now, this is, this is very interesting. I think we naturally, as guys, we gravitate to the idea of coaching, right? Uh, coaching involves uh, gentle encouragement mixed with blunt, in-your-face admonition to get better. And, you know, very simply, those who respond to good coaching get better and those who don't get better. I mean, that's, that's all it is. We, we're very simple creatures. But the writer here says, let us consider how to stir up. Stir up is very much a coaching idea. Here's another Greek word for you. Ready for this? And, and you'll recognize this. Paroxysmos. Say that. Paroxysmos. Paroxysmos. We get our word paroxysm from it. You know what a paroxysm is? It's a spasm. It's a, it's a sudden attack. It's a convulsion. It's a sudden explosion of emotion. It's to have something just stirred up in you all of a sudden. Um, if any of you have played or do play sports, you have either been the recipient of or watched the poor slob who is a recipient of a coach getting precisely one half inch away from your nose and telling you exactly why you're the worst thing ever to step on a field and why you should never consider being an athlete for the rest of your life again. Why do coaches do that? To paroxysm, to paroxysmus, to stir you up. And what's interesting about this the original Greek use of this term is to have a sharp disagreement. To have a sharp disagreement. And then it came to mean to sharpen somebody, that same meaning, to stimulate, to challenge somebody, to purposefully try to motivate somebody to change or to improve, uh, to improve their attitude. Uh, what it is, it's a, it's a fairly aggressive pursuit of the sanctification of your brothers. It's an aggressive pursuit. It's not a, it's not a necessarily always gentle approach. It's a very direct approach. The highly successful football or uh, basketball coach, rather, uh, Pat Riley, some of you have followed his career, uh, he said this, I love this, to have long-term success as a coach or in any position of leadership, you have to be obsessed in some way. And that's really true. And what 
The word paroxysmos means to be obsessed with stirring up one another to getting in each other's lives in a deep, intimate way, not in a, a Sunday morning, shake your hand, smile, be praying for you way, but to go way beyond that. Now you think about, um, I, I think about my role uh, as a shepherd, shepherd in a church, there's a primary coaching role, and I understand that, and I, there's a, a lot of similarities which I enjoy thinking about. Uh, the role is to proclaim God's word, to see the sanctification of our body, the maturing of the members through the preaching and teaching of the Bible. But if we want to get really uh, a, a deeper understanding of what the role of a shepherd is, the role of a coach, continue with that metaphor of coaching. The pastor's job is not to coach many players, but to coach many coaches. Do you see the difference? That's the difference between being a disciple maker and one who makes disciple makers. That it doesn't end with you. It's 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Paul spoke of taking the things that Timothy had learned and teach them to others who can teach them to others also. There's four generations listed there. Paul, Timothy, the others, and those that the others will teach. And so my job is not to teach players as a coach. My job is to coach coaches, particularly the men in the church, those who are stirrer-uppers. And once you put yourself in the role of a stirrer-upper, you know what it does? It keeps you from that spiritual numbness. It keeps you from just kind of being on the fringe because now you're not just thinking about yourself. Well, I've been to church three times this month and had somebody over to dinner six months ago. I think we're good. No, now you're thinking about others. How can I stir others up? And as a result, you benefit as well. well. Let's do another reason that men need each other, and that's right service. Right service. What are we to paroxysmos, to stir one another up to? To love and good works. Now, this is one Greek word all Christians know. I think you're born again knowing this. Agape, right? We all know that one. Love. But this is what's called an appositive in, in grammar. It means that it's listed with another term that helps define specifically what the first one means. In this case, love is defined by good works. That what you're doing to love one another is you're doing good things. Now, the context here is important. We have a wonderful emphasis in our church on evangelism, on reaching out, and we bless the Lord for that. That's, that's good, that's proper. We love to reach out and proclaim the gospel. But the context of these good works in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is making yourself useful to the believers, making yourself useful to the local church, to one another. I was in contact with a church recently about maybe a third the size of Grace Bible Church with five full-time pastors. And I wondered, well, first of all, where do you get the money to do that? They must have some wealthy guys in the church. But what I figured out was that they have one full-time pastor for about every 25 people in the church. And I, I just don't see the usefulness of that. And I looked on their website for a little bit after I ended up talking to, to one of the pastors. And what I noticed was that those five guys are doing everything and nobody else in the church is doing anything from what I could tell and from my conversation with them. At Grace Bible Church, we're, we're trying to espouse an Ephesians 4.12 model of ministry. Ephesians 4.12 says that we equip the saints to do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Who does the work of the ministry? The saints. What's my job? My job is to, is to teach and to train. Your job is to do the ministry. There's always plenty to do, as it should be. We want to exercise our body life together such that we're spending regular time together. I read one study that um, 
one of the top three biggest complaints that faithful women in the church have is that they're pulling more than their fair share. And that they'll say, I'm doing this, 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 and this. My husband shows up twice a month to sweep. He doesn't do anything else. That's one of the top three complaints, according to one study, of ladies in the church. Just as an example, one of our passions here is to provide children an opportunity to be taught God's Word and to hear the gospel regularly at a developmentally appropriate level for them so where they can understand it. That's an important ministry that we have here. Our ch- uh, Sunday Children's Church time is staffed by volunteers, and many of you volunteer for Children's Church, and, and I bless the Lord for you. And they teach for a month at a time um, for to the children, so they, and then... Uh, they have to miss Sunday morning service for that month. Right now, right now, I know of at least two families that are having to serve four months a year. Now, let me quote from uh, James 3, My brothers, these things ought not to be so, that we ought to spread the load. Here's another opportunity. Uh, When I came to Grace Bible Church, I made a commitment to double my study time, to double my workload so that we can double the sermons that are preached here um, my commitment is to preach 100 times a year at Grace Bible Church. And so we did that by having a Sunday night service. But right now, we have limited opportunities uh, for children because we, we, haven't, we don't have a, a way for uh, uh, children to be taken care of uh, up through, you know, we take care of the little bitty ones. Now, those of you who are parents of small kids or used to be parents of small kids, you remember what children are like at 5 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. They're just done. They're, they're sort of toasted and trashed. And so the thought of bringing them here and having to make them sit still and elbow them and, and be quiet for an hour and a half, that's hard on our parents. So another opportunity we have is I'm praying for a few brave souls to come forward. Not today. We won't have an altar call or anything. But to, uh, to come forward and say, you know what? We have a Sunday night service so that we can double the discipleship opportunities for the adults and the young people in our church. Well, we're gonna, I'm praying for a few brave souls to say we're going to do something really creative and fun with the kids so that their parents can come and, and, and be fed and be fed God's word because right now we're having a struggle there. So I, I bring up those two things simply as, as examples of opportunities to have the right service that, you know what, I'm a man, I'm going to step up and I'm going to uh, help make something happen. These are just, uh, just examples we're to stir one another up, see needs and meet needs. Um, and this is what the author calls love. Good works together. In working together, it's love. And there's another reason uh, that men need each other, and that's right leadership. Right leadership. He continues, not neglecting meeting together. Not neglecting meeting together. Not neglecting. It's the word egg katalepo. That's a hard one. Egg katalepo. Say that one with me. Egg katalepo. This doesn't mean anything. It's just for fun. I wouldn't do this on a Sunday. It means don't abandon something. Don't forsake it. Don't leave it behind. Don't, um, don't leave those who need you behind. And then he says, not neglecting, meeting together. Meeting together. Episunagoge. Say that. Episunagoge. What word do you hear in there? Synagogue. You hear that? The word synagogue just means the meeting together place. And what that word means, don't neglect your meeting together place. Don't neglect the time when you actually physically gather together. The fact that we are able to put sermons on the internet is a double-edged sword to me. 
It's a double-edged sword because I praise the Lord that we have people in multiple states, multiple countries who listen to our messages every week, and we get to feed God's Word to those that we've never met. That's an incredible blessing. The double-edged sword, though, is at 4 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, it's way too easy to say, oh, I'll just listen to it online. And I continually have this temptation to say, don't post sermons for a month until after they're preached, because if you're going to not show up, then you've got to wait for it. But I'm not going to be that ornery uh, about it. But honestly, in our day and age, that has become a, a cultural item. I can't find a good church, so I'll just listen online. That is not an acceptable excuse because we need one another. Uh, I had somebody call me with that exact complaint. I can't find a good church. Can't find a good church. And I looked on the map and, and did a little checking, and I had to agree with him. I agree with you. You're in a difficult situation. And so my admonition to this man was, well, then find a church and make it a better church because you're there. Find a church and be a minister of the gospel to those who are there. And he said, well, hey, the churches in our area, half of them have, they're all unbelievers. And I said, well, what a wonderful opportunity for the gospel. Go to church and evangelize. I mean, what a thought. But there's no excuse. We are to meet together. We're not to, we're not to eg katalepo, to abandon that. We're to get together, and that's hard. That means being vulnerable. It means being real. Listen. An effective Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. And I don't mean the guy who doesn't ever show up. I mean the guy who's here all the time but doesn't have any actual real vital relationships. And, and I'm going to say this. Uh, I'm more gentle with ladies in this, but with guys um, who will tell me, well, I just I haven't felt like men have reached out to me. Uh, the Greek word for that is too bad. You reach out. You reach out. You do it. You get, get on your phone, say, you know, who, who can I invite to lunch? Who can I get involved in your life? And, and do it. An effective Christian life can't be lived in isolation. We're not built that way. Because what happens is this numbness starts setting in. This is the, this is the number one danger of a growing church, growing in numbers, is that that numbness can become the culture. That can become the culture of the church. We show up, we get out in our notebooks, we take notes. We learn wonderful things. We're maybe and rightfully so impacted by the preaching of the word. But you can go years and not be in a true vital relationship with one, two, or three other guys. That's the danger. And so that's why we're going to push small groups. We're going to push everything we can to help uh, that not happen as much as possible. I read an article this week uh, that said that a Christian who's not vitally involved in a local church can still grow and still have a walk with Christ, quote, although it is less than ideal. I would take great umbrage with that phrase. It's not less than ideal, it's disobedient. It's disobedient. The scripture says, don't neglect meeting together to paroxysmos, to stir one another up, and to, to stick your nose in guys' lives. Uh, I've heard this as well, while I worship with my family at home. The New Testament makes no provision for that. The New Testament makes no allowance for that. And then somebody says, well, what about home churches? Well, do they have elders? Yeah, great. That's a church. It just happens to meet in somebody's house. But a, a, a uh, guy who says, well, I worship with my family in my home, uh, the root of that problem is I don't want to be, take the work and the effort to be intimately interwoven with the body of Christ. Because it is. It's, it's hard. I, just out of curiosity, and you don't have to, you don't have to 
uh, give details. Has anybody here, by a member of Grace Bible Church, been given a suggestion, corrective, or even confronted about sin? Any of you? Yeah? All right. The rest of you need to be confronted about the fact you're being dishonest about that. No. Now, some of you raised your hand really high. Daniel, I want to just ask you a question. It won't be personal. But I just want to ask you, what do you think motivated that corrective? What, what was the motivation behind it? Well, but I mean, why did, why did somebody do that? Was it because they hated your guts? <laughs> yeah, right. It felt that way at first. But what was the motivation? It was love, wasn't it? And, and ultimately, you turned out to, to be grateful for it. Right. That's the level of intimacy we're looking for. Now, we're not there yet. This is why I'm, I'm preaching this message. We're not there yet. And again, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. You came and ate breakfast and all that. But I'm going to give you some ways to, for us to reach out to one another. Um, I don't believe in the concept of levels of spirituality uh, like charismatics or Arminians like to define it. Uh, they, they define it where you go from humdrum vanilla faith to, to suddenly super-duper committed and there, something happened to you uh, along the way. I think that's an emotional flash in the pan uh, that's more about sentiment, more about emotion than it is about a lifestyle, lifestyle of spiritual commitment. But that being said, I've observed in men, and I've heard from many men, that at some point they just woke up and said, what am I doing I need to be involved in the body of Christ. I need to get my, get my family to church. I need to step up. I need to lead myself. And I'm not saying that that's some sort of super spiritual experience. I think it's just a, a decision where a guy grows up enough to say, all right, time to leave the childish things behind. And they become good churchmen. They're devoted to the life of, of the, in the context of the body of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> one pastor of a large church was asked how he identifies potential church leaders. How do you identify these guys? And he gave a shocking answer. He said, I don't. I don't identify them. They identify themselves. His exact quote is, I don't. They identify themselves. They are here all the time and demonstrate consistency. That's the pool I will draw from because they've demonstrated they can lead themselves and their family. Great answer. I don't choose leaders. They choose themselves. Well, here's another reason men need each other. Very similar to leadership. But that would be right example. Right example. Obviously, the top priority we have in gathering together is to turn our attention to the worship of God through Christ. But part of that worship is to set a right example for one another. And this is in the context of, but encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. This is another Greek word I'll bet you've heard already. It's the word parakaleo. Say that with me. Parakaleo. You've heard that before. It means to urge. It means to implore. It literally means to come alongside, to speak alongside someone. It's the idea of putting your arm around somebody and speaking into their lives, walking with them. Now, stirring up that we looked at a minute ago, it is, it, there are parts of it that are direct and that are verbal, while parakaleo, the encouraging part, it includes the idea of verbal, of, of just talking but it also has the idea of more of a lifestyle example, of just living a life that you think other men would, be, would benefit from. Uh, one of the things that we have pounded into our heads in seminary is live a life worth following. Live a life worth imitating. Boy, that weighs on me. I have nightmares about that. 
I'll wake in the middle of the night, oh, is my life worth following? Because it's, it's a big deal. Uh, another thing that gets pounded into us is that your church will become like their pastor. That scares me to death because that means the example means something. Well, I would take that a step further and say that a church becomes like the men in the church. You want to have an apathetic church? Have apathetic men. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir. I, I understand that. All of us men can recall times when another man made an offhanded comment about something or we observed something in somebody's life that was an absolute game changer for you. So particularly as a young man, you see a man who happens to do his budget a certain way and you think, wow, I just keep all my money in a jar. Maybe I should do something different. And we have these examples that sometimes are very silent. Um, I, I think I could ask every one of you if there has been a silent example in your life who never said a word to you, but you saw something that had a major impact on you. And I think we would all agree with that. One of my prayers for Grace Bible Church is that we develop a culture of discipleship. And that's obvious. We do that. Discipleship to be equipped, not just for some specific ministry duty, but to be equipped to live a Christian life uh, the, with excellence and intelligent uh, nature, uh, the intelligent nature of being a, a man of God that knows what to do. But a major outworking of discipleship that I love and I'm praying for is small group ministry. Um, small group ministry is, is a way that a church of any size can have three levels of discipleship at a micro level. What are those three levels of discipleship? Being with someone more mature than you, being with someone who's kind of running the race at the same pace that you are, and being with someone that you need to bring alongside. So we might think of it as like a train that small group uh, ministry gives you an opportunity to latch on to somebody who is running the race as the engine. Uh, it gives you an opportunity to latch on to other cars that are running the race about the same pace as you. And it gives you the opportunity to reach back and grab a caboose and say, come on, let's move forward together. A wonderful opportunity. Um, I know of a church, in fact, I looked at their website yesterday, and they work hard at small groups. They have a map. They have all kinds of systems by which uh, they can disciple people. And they have thousands of people they're discipling at an intimate level. And they have a rule. Uh, I happen to know the, the small groups pastor there. Their rule is small groups will not exceed 12 members. And they're ministering to thousands of people that way. Phenomenal ministry. Incredible vision for getting men and women together at an intimate level. I think it takes a number of years to develop this culture. It takes years to do that. But a key ingredient are men who set the right example, not just of gathering together in corporate worship, not even just together uh, in, in these times where we gather as men, but gathering for every smaller, intimate opportunity we can and taking those chances. Uh, one guy that I sat under in seminary, he used the phrase, uh, redeem the time. And that's obviously from Scripture, but his idea was redeem the time as a leader in the church when men gather together. This is a glorious opportunity. I wouldn't miss a men's breakfast to save my life. This is my opportunity to, to hang out with you guys. I had fun this morning. I hung out with the youth. That was a blast. And we talked about things I won't even say out loud because that's what youth do. We, we talked about horrible things to eat and what happens to you as a result of that. But that's fun. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful opportunity. As an example... When the church doors are open, every time you can, be here. When there's opportunities for prayer, be here. Um, Charles Spurgeon's church, Metropolitan Tabernacle, is famous for filling up their basement with men and women who prayed. We have 
an 8.45 Sunday morning prayer time. Be there. You don't have to be there every time. Just say, okay, five times a year I'm going to be there. But all these opportunities ultimately um, keep you from that spiritual numbness. It takes years to develop that, but the culture has to be established by the men. And by the way, all throughout history, great movements in Christianity have always been begun by men every time. Um, when great movements that are later espoused as great movements are begun by women, you know what generally happens? It goes off the rails. It has nothing to do with the gender. It just has to do with the fact that God uses men to do great things because a growing number of men get on board with, with something. They get devoted to, they devote themselves to something greater than just supplementing their personal lives with spiritual multivitamins where the church is just a part of your life. Well, the right example, and finally, the, the final reason men need each other, we might say the right urgency. The right urgency. The writer of Hebrews gives the reason to increase in resolve. He says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more is a single Greek word. It's one word. It's the word pasutas. I'm sorry, tasutas. Say tasutas with me. Tasutas. This is a, you can't really translate this in English. In English, you would say the really big this. What? That doesn't make sense. Well, put it this way. We might say, this is important. Tasutas says, this is important. It's an emphasis. All the more. And it, it, we would use in English the word so to go with it. So many, so much, so great, so big, so far. It's the big this what is the big this as you see the day drawing near? The day can speak generally of the end of redemptive history. It can also include the judgment aspect of the day of the Lord. And that's the context of the next few verses, the fearful expectation of judgment. Now, why would a Christian need to be motivated to need one another by the fact that redemptive history is ticking down, that the clock is ticking down? Why do we need that? There's a lot of reasons we could examine but I want to key in on just one, one reason why this motivation is important. Look at uh, the same chapter, verse 35. Verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What's the author saying here? He's saying, prove that your faith is real. Demonstrate your endurance. Not in the sense of keeping your salvation, and we understand that, but in the sense of receiving assurance that your faith is genuine. Now, let me ask you a question. Does the fringe guy or the guy who's all in have more assurance that his faith is genuine, not the fringe guy. He's saying here, give yourself that assurance. Verses 37 and 38 makes a contrast between those whose faith is real, those whose faith is false. Ultimately, it will be shown to be false when they shrink back from Christ. There's a shrinking back. 1 John 2, 28, And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What is his motivation? It's being motivated by the, heart, the heart's desire to be intimately involved with the true body of Christ 
so that you can receive assurance of salvation. That's part of your assurance. In fact, 1 John says this 12 times. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And I, I have no problem asking a guy, you know, you're here, you're kind of here, but who are you involved with? Who are your men? Who's discipling you? Who are you reaching out to? Who are you being involved with? And if the answer is, well, really nobody, it is entirely possible, and this is the motivation of the end of Hebrews 10, it is entirely possible for a man to be the quote-unquote faithful church member and die and go to hell. Wow. The reason we're motivated to be here, be involved, is because as you're with men, you experience another Greek word, koinonia, fellowship, togetherness, communion. That's what the men on the road to Emmaus said. Did not our hearts burn within us as we walked with him by the way? And what does that do for you? As you gather with men and you sense that fellowship, that bond, that communion that's only in Christ, and you do that over and over and over again, you can give thanks to the Lord saying, what assurance I have received because I love God's men. And because I love God's men, I love God. And I praise the Lord for that. John says the opposite about other men. They went out from us because they were not of us. It is possible to be one who goes out from us and yet show up every Sunday in a suit and tie. It's possible. Darren and I were talking this week, and he mentioned uh, a guy that we both knew in seminary. In fact, he was one of Darren's roommates uh, for a while. Uh, he never was really all in. Seemed kind of like a slippery and elusive guy relationally. Um, it seemed kind of aloof. And I didn't really even notice this until Darren and I were talking, and, and I realized that I, I've known him for a few years, but never really got to know him, and I didn't see him getting to know anybody else. He claimed to be a man of God. Well, Darren came and told me that um, and he, the phrase he used was, another one bites the dust. Um, this young man has cheated on his wife multiple times. He's been unrepentant, so much so that um, the elders of his church very unusually has count, have counseled his wife to divorce him say he's a loser he's never going to get it together just move on with your life very unusual to do that and they had right reasons for doing so i personally have been involved with a number of situations in which church discipline has gone all the way to the fourth step of public rebuke and removal from the church uh, of a man in every single case of a man every single case there has been a habitual non-involvement and aloofness a self-focused thinking that until you look back and think retrospectively, you kind of go, oh, he never was really here. Every time. Every single time. Now, I, I purposefully have a warning tone in this talk today. Uh, you're men, you can take it, and I think that we respond well to that. But I know I'm preaching to the choir um, for the most part because you're here. So we, we do understand we need each other. I originally planned to try to utilize this time to put together some new ideas for men's ministry and get those into gear. I think we have numerous opportunities already, and we want to just keep making those better. For now, what I want to talk about just for a moment is rather than focusing on the organization, we want to focus on the organism, and there's a difference. Um, we talk about this in our leadership meetings all the time, that there are two, uh, two 
approaches that we have to ministry. We have the organizational side where we want to make sure things are organized, but we have the organic side as well, the organism side where uh, the body ought to just have a natural breath to it. It ought to have a natural life, a natural uh, inflow and outflow. It ought to have a natural uh, rhythm to it. So I don't want to focus on the organizational, that let's start another program or, or let's do this or that. I want to just focus for a moment on the organic on our thinking, on our natural interactions and love for one another. Um, I spoke to a young man a number of weeks ago uh, who attends a, a church of about a thousand. And I said, well, you know, tell me about your church. And he said, it's a wonderful church, uh, great teaching. The doctrine is wonderful. And I said, well, you know, what kind of programs do you have? And we, he said, well, basically, we don't have any. We don't have any. We, we meet together. Um, we have some small groups, and we have a men's thing, a couple of things here. And I said, well, what's that like? And he said, well, our pastor for two decades has been preaching the organic body life that we ought to be having. And he said, there isn't a person in our church that's not taken care of. A thousand members, and everybody is taken care of. And people know one another because that's the culture they've developed. So that's what I want to talk about just for a moment, is that organic nature has nothing to do with size. Nothing to do with size of a, of a body. I, I preached in a church once that had like 12 people when I came there. It was a little tiny Baptist church in the, in the middle of central Texas. And I got there and I said, all right, you know, that's fine. I don't mind preaching to a small crowd. That's, that's great. And uh, it, you have to have been from Texas to kind of understand this. But the, the deacon in charge came up and he said, at the end of your message, you need to do an altar call. I said, well... Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. And he said, we ain't paying you if you don't. Okay, I'll do an altar call. That's fine. And so I said, is there anybody here that you don't know? Nope. This is our church. And you want me to do an altar call? Yes. Uh, when was the last time somebody came forward? Don't remember. Okay. And so I preached and I said, all right, let's do, you know, 18 verses of just as I am. I cut it off after one verse and said, okay, we're done. That was the coldest little church I've ever been in in my whole life. Conversely, I have preached in churches with hundreds of people who are warm and congenial, and you see them loving one another, and you see the body life happening. You can just sit back and go, wow, this is happening. By God's grace, I believe that's happening at Grace Bible Church. By God's instruction to me and to the church at Thessalonica, where Paul said, you know how to love one another Yet do still more. The most loving church in the Bible, Thessalonica. Paul said, great, do better, do more. So that's our admonition organically. Let me give you three ideas about organically helping this happen. Because you're the guys who were here. You came and you suffered through a wonderful breakfast. That was amazing. Um, and I'm using that facetiously, of course. I want to give you three challenges in the form of questions. Three challenges in the form of questions to help our organic body life together. First question is, who needs paroxysmos? Who needs stirring up? Who can you invite to lunch? Who can you invite to dinner? Who can you encourage? Who's slipping through the cracks? How do you find out if somebody's slipping through the cracks? Ask them. Just ask them. Hey, are you, I haven't talked to you in like three months. Are you feeling involved here in the body? You know, I'm in a small group. Are you in one? Uh, I've, I've been doing BTI. Are you doing that? And come alongside them. Who needs paroxysmos? Who needs stirring up? And man to man, you can do that. Don't do it in front of his wife. 
because you'll, you'll shame him, pull him aside and say, what are you doing? No, don't say that. But, but just paroxysmos, who needs to be stirred up? And look around and listen. That's a constant, constant thing. When I first came to Grace Bible Church and these seats were for the most part empty, every time a new family walked through the door, it was like, it was like piranha. You know, everybody's right there and that's wonderful. We must maintain that. As the seats fill up, it's all too easy to go, oh, looks like another new family over there. Wonder if they're saved. Well, I guess I got to be going. No, Ben Moore sets the example. He says, don't let them leave without asking them if they know Christ. Don't let them leave without an invitation to dinner. Don't let them leave without an invitation to a small group or to uh, come back on Sunday night. I love his example in that. Who needs stirring up? You know what makes me sad as a pastor? Because it, it in part reflects my failing. But when somebody says, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so in a couple of months. What makes me sad is when I know I didn't even notice because they were on the fringe and they just kind of slipped away. So who needs stirring up? Here's a second question to think about. Is there a way you need to step up more in any of these six areas? Right thinking, coaching, right service, right leadership, right example, right urgency. How do you need to set that example and how do you need to step up? Um, I'm not going to ask you to volunteer this information, but just think about how much time you spend in recreation, how much time you spend pursuing hobbies, and maybe think about giving up a little bit of that um, for Christ and for the local church. Um, I love to woodwork. I enjoy doing that very much. Uh, I left all of my woodworking things in Texas to come to seminary because I knew I wouldn't have time. And plus, we already had a huge moving van. I couldn't, couldn't bring it with me. Still want to do that when I can. But I've asked the Lord specifically on the new earth for an axe and a thousand acres. Um, so I can do that later. I love to do those things. But right now, there are men who are dying, women who need Christ. There are children who don't know the gospel. So there's things to do. So think about your time and how you can stir yourself up. And then finally, third challenge in the form of a question. Very simple way to put this. Who can you pay closer attention to? Who can you pay closer attention to? And it's a real simple thing to do. You ask the Lord to lead you to a man, maybe even to an entire family, in our local church, that you can just decide, I'm going to come alongside you. Now, here's the fun part. Don't even tell them that that's what you're doing. You just pick them. You know what? I see so-and-so. I don't see him talking to very many people. And you just decide, for the next two months, this guy is my project. I'm going to draw near to him. I'm going to draw close to him. So just decide, who can you pay closer attention to and just decide to be an encouragement? There are opportunities right now to answer these questions. Opportunities at this moment. You can invite a man to Iron Men. You can invest in another man uh, in his family. Um, I actually overheard a conversation I didn't mean to, but it, it blessed my heart. Uh, when one family asked another, we'd like to get to know you more, so for the next few Sunday nights after church, can we get together? Wow! That was awesome. You should have seen their faces. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. That sounds great. If you're close to completing Bible Training Institute, you can start thinking about leading a small group and who you would invite. You can go through the directory, find somebody you don't know. We have a wonderful asset, and that is GraceNet. You can go through the directory and go, I don't even know who that is. I'm going to call him up. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, Bart Bissell. I'm just calling because I have no idea who you are. 
just wanted to let you know that I care about you. I saw you in the directory and just wanted you to know that I care about you. It in, takes intentionality. It takes work. It takes, uh, takes a decision. One of my heroes of the faith is a guy named Tom McConnell. He was a friend of mine. He's a missionary to England. Uh, he's a pastor of Grace Bible Church of Rugby, um, another Grace Bible Church. I've preached in his church. Um, but I met him for the first time when he preached a message at the Master Seminary Chapel, a message I never forgot, called The Intimacy of Discipleship. He preached from 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 and 11, which say this, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. And yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And he went through each of these, follow my teaching, follow my conduct, follow my aim in life, follow my faith, my life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. He defines spiritual friendship in this message as being focused on obeying God's word with the aim of conforming to God's word. Obeying God's word with the aim of conforming to God's word. He talked about this enigmatic mystery, this mystery of how do you make disciples? I mean, we've heard sermons about this. How do you do that? How do you get intimately involved in the lives of other men? How do you achieve this life-on-life pattern of discipleship, of getting involved with one another? And he asked this question, a rhetorical question. He said, how do you find these sorts of disciples? And I was waiting for this really profound answer. And I'll never forget this. He leaned forward. He said, go get them. Go after them. Stir them up. Grab a guy and say, we're eating lunch this week. We're out of time. Too bad. We're eating lunch next week. Whatever we have to do. And he used a phrase I never forgot. He said, change their lives and do it on purpose. That's a disciple maker. My job is not to coach players. My job is to coach coaches. And for you guys to be those men. So let's help one another and help our brothers break out of the numbing anesthetic of spiritual mediocrity and run this race with excellence together. Now I've got to say this. I purposefully took a bit of a direct tone this morning um, because you guys can take it. <clears throat> but I'm so grateful that uh, to see, from what I can tell, Grace Bible Church is on the right track. I'm really grateful for that because that's unusual, that there is an organism that's working together. Um, I, I love hearing about that so-and-so had this need and this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy all surrounded him and took care of that need before I even heard about it. I love that. That's beautiful. But we never rest on our haunches, do we? We never say, oh, good. Because the moment you do that, uh, when you run a race on your heels, what happens? You can't run. So we run on our toes and we, we sprint forward. So uh, this is a, I'll preach this sort of message 20 years from now, that we need to keep running. Um, I'm always so surprised to read First Thessalonians when Paul says, you have mastered brotherly love. But do it a little better. Do it a little better. So that's my admonition to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, help us to do it a little better. There are some men who are not here this morning, and there's no legalism involved here. We're not uh, judging them. Some men have to work or have things going on. We, we understand that. But we're thinking more philosophically, Lord, about those who are not here, who wouldn't have been here no matter what, who aren't here when we do anything, who show up on occasion. Oh, Lord, we, we don't condemn them. We love them. We, we uh, pray for them. 
and we want to come alongside them. Lord God, we're grateful for the 40 or so men who are here this morning. I pray that every one of them would have the opportunity to have an impact on another man. It might even be one from one who's here, who's here right now. But Lord, uh, we're begging you, we're pleading with you to continue to mature and develop the organism that meets on Young Street, the, uh, the, the local representation of the body of Christ here. That we would love one another in a way that is just phenomenal. And if I could use the word uh, in a, not in a spiritual sense, but just in an almost magical way where we see the Spirit of God working through us, through just the mundane things of pulling alongside a guy and saying, hey, how can I encourage you? Lord, I pray that we would be a body filled with male coaches who will coach one another to greater excellence, to not forsake meeting together, but to meet together to stir one another up. May we be stirrer-uppers, Lord and to do so all to the glory of Christ, and to uh, present to Him a church that is pleasing and that is honoring to the head. All these things we pray in His name. Amen.